Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 24 of The Nature of Middle-Earth. Indeed, this is, I think, the antepenultimate session of our na The Nature of Middle-Earth. We are moving right along. Um, I'm not planning really to talk too much about the appendices, so I'm going to stop at the end of the, uh, um, the Rivers and Beacon Hills of Gondor uh, chapter. And uh, we're... we're getting down towards it. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll see. It'll depend, of course, on how we do in these next couple weeks. But, um, but that's the plan. I'm going to be away for the last week of April, uh, going away with family that week. So um, I won't be able to broadcast from that week. It's my goal to finish before I go. So we'll see. <clears throat> we'll see. We'll see how that works out. Because then we could start uh, Alice in Wonderland uh, when I get back. And that'll be fun. Um, one quick announcement I wanted to do tonight, and that is just to uh, remind you uh, to sign up for Myth Moot because uh, we've just so we've just finished the last of our regional moots for this spring. I just did uh, Sunshine Moot this past weekend, so I've been in uh, Austin, Texas, and Orlando, Florida uh, over the last couple weekends, um, and those have been just awesome times. So much fun to connect with folks, um, both to be interacting with the online folks who are uh, attending remotely uh, and to be able to hang out with the uh, folks who are able to come uh, corporeally uh, to the event. Um, <clears throat> really, really good time. Both of them were uh, really, really good times. And uh, looking forward to MythMoot, which is the big deal, right? Which is uh, our biggest conference. Um, and so looking forward to connecting with folks again at MythMoot this year, which will again like the rest of, like everything we've done since last year's MythMoot, um, will again be a fully hybrid conference to the greatest extent that we can possibly make it. Um, so uh, anyway, I'm hoping to be able to see lots of people there. Now, I've been talking about one other regional moot possibility, uh, which was Buckeye Moot in Ohio. Um, and we've we decided to push that back a little bit. We were trying to see if it could work in May, but the only time, the only weekends in May that would work out with the venue we're looking at is early in May. And we're like, gosh, that's like one month away. So rather than, we didn't want to spoil the wonder with haste, uh, as Legolas might have said, not about Buckeye Moot, but, um, um, and uh, no offense to the people who live in Ohio. I don't think that too many people have used that phrase about the state of Ohio, really, uh, too many times in the past. But anyway, we didn't want to do that, so uh, we decided to push it back a little bit. So we're going to—we're planning at this point to do Buckeye Moot in Ohio in um, uh, in May, <clears throat> in or not, not May, not May, in July instead. So we're looking at uh, probably the end of July. Um, so that would make it, instead of the end of our spring moot season, it would be the beginning of our fall moot season. The first moot of the new moot year, uh, which always resets after myth moot, basically. So that's the, um, that's the, that's the idea here. <laughs> here, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, the yeah, title's wrong. Well, we'll have to live with that. That's okay. Um, uh, yeah, that's what, uh, happens on Wednesdays when I'm 
doing double broadcasts and dashing around to family commitments in between up to the last second on every single one of them. So um, anyway, yeah, so uh, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to, as I say, we're going to do Ohio moot, uh, Buckeye moot uh, in July. Really looking forward to this coming moot year, uh, as I think we're going to be, you know, we, we kind of reestablished a foundation this past year. This was our kind of transition back into regional moots. Um, uh, and also our experiment with making our making over our regional moots into hybrid events, which was the first time we'd ever tried that, um, which involved not only uh, different approaches to doing our programming and working that out, but even, you know, the acquisition and use of new hardware and stuff like that. You know, I now, uh, for those of you who have, um, um, for those of you who have seen me, uh, at one of our regional moots this year will have seen me carrying around my little, uh, my little hardware case, right? My little, uh, my, my little suitcase full of, uh, uh, full of goodies that, uh, I use to, uh, to do the hybrid stuff. So, um, anyway, that's, it's been a great year transitioning into that and working that out. And we're really excited to expand that for next year. So, um, I, uh, wanted to now is, a really good time to start thinking about if you are interested in having a moot near you. We're um, we're definitely looking to we're hoping, of course, to repeat the moots that we did this year. We had uh, we had five moots this year. Uh, we had New England moot in New, here in New Hampshire. We had um, um, Bay moot out in uh, San Fran- the, the San Francisco Bay area in California. Um, we had uh, middle moot, of course, which was out in Iowa this year, and it's going to be in Kansas City next year. And then, of course, we just had Tex moot and Sunshine moot down in Florida. Um, we are um, looking forward to redoing, you know, to revisiting all five of those locations next year, and also adding some more. We'd love to add SoCal moot back uh, to go back to Southern California. I have some ideas for that. Um, we're looking to add Magnolia moot back in the in the in the southeast. You know, Carolinas uh, usually is where we've been so far, uh, where we've been looking for that. Um, we're looking to um, then also add uh, some new moots. We've been talking to folks. Um, we're adding Buckeye moot, uh, you know, this coming year. That I think is is, is definitely going to happen. Um, we're looking to add uh, some others as well. We've been discussing the possibility of doing a moot out in the Mountain West region out in Salt Lake City is what we're looking at. Um, and, um, then we're, um, we're looking at, um, uh, I would love to come to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, that would be really cool. Going to like Portland or Seattle, uh, would be a wonderful place to have another moot. Um, we would like to do Maple Moot in Toronto. We've been having some discussions about that as well. Um, so, uh, it would be really fun. And of course, next year, we're looking also to return to our international moots. We have one definitely uh, planned and scheduled, and that is Ozmoot in Australia, which is happening at the end of, July, of January. Um, end of January 2023, of course. Um, and then we're um, um, and then we're headed uh, back to Europe as well next year. Um, and right now, it's kind of a toss-up. We haven't yet decided um, whether we're going to be in Stockholm or, or in Germany. So Sweden and Germany are our two uh, um, uh, prime candidates uh, for Europe moot this coming year. Uh, so anyway, it's going to be um, uh, it's going to be it's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, looking forward to 
expanding things again, uh, seeing us get back up towards where we were before the pandemic, which was uh, steadily eight to ten uh, regional moots a year. Um, anyway, so that's going to be great fun. So looking forward to that. If you are in any of those areas that I mentioned, like the Pacific Northwest or near Toronto or um, <clears throat> again, and those other places that I mentioned of places that we're thinking about expanding into Southern California as well, um, uh, you might want to consider volunteering uh, to help. It's way easier than you. Th- helping to make a moot happen is way easier than you might think. Um, if you're interested in that, we did, uh, Karita Alexander, our regional moot coordinator, and I uh, did a session on this, uh, which we uh, which is posted on our YouTube channel. So if you go to Signum University's YouTube channel, you can see the our info session on hosting regional moots, um, where uh, we answer, especially Karita, answers a lot of questions that people have about that. And we try to kind of just spell a bunch of misunderstandings that people usually come in with uh, on that subject. So um, would love to see more people involved and uh, to help us out in uh, expanding our regional moot program even more. So yes, Osmoot is in Brisbane. That's correct, uh, David Michael. That's exactly right. Um, so um, uh, yep, yep, that is, um, that's just where we're going to be my first visit my first time in Australia, really looking forward to, uh, really looking forward to getting down there. Uh, that's going to be a very great deal of fun. All right. Um, uh, let us get back to the text in the interest of achieving my goal of, uh, finishing the book in three more sessions. So tonight, um, there of course are such a variety of things in this book, aren't there? You know, in some places we're getting some just like really eye-opening brand new stuff, seeing Tolkien talk about stuff that I didn't expect him to talk about at all, right? And then there are some other places where we're really seeing behind the curtain in a new way, like all that math stuff, right, was for me um, really one of the freshest views of Tolkien's mind and process, planning process and creative process at work. I mean, I found that more illuminating than, uh, you know, anything I've read since like the first time I picked up the history of Middle Earth, basically. I mean, it's um, really remarkable, right? And then there are some other places, and this is what I think we're mostly going to be discussing tonight, where what we're getting is sort of um, uh, filling up the corners, as hobbits might say, right? Um, Where we have some texts that have been written, been published in other places, um, but especially the the kind of the, the primary trend, right, is that Christopher Tolkien, in one of the, you know, in, in Unfinished Tales, or maybe in one of the volumes of the History of Middle-earth, has included the originals from these texts, but has only given us excerpts, or maybe he didn't even give us the text, he just kind of summarized it in a paragraph, right? And so here in this volume, we get the chance actually to read the rest of that text for the first time. Um, and, you know, in some ways, the the most careful way to approach these texts, like we're going to get to the Galadriel and Celeborn chapter tonight, he says confidently. And uh, when we get to Galadriel and Celeborn, that one is very much a kind of companion piece of the Unfinished Tales. What we're getting there is, again, sort of stuff that, because uh, again, especially if you remember the Galadriel and Celeborn chapter, um, we did get some primary texts, but we get quite a bit of Christopher Tolkien summarizing for us, right? And just kind of telling us about 
the trajectory of these revisions and ideas that Tolkien had for Galadriel and Celeborn. Um, so in that chapter, we're getting several things that we didn't, we haven't had before. They're not exactly a revelation, right? Again, they're not, it's not totally new stuff. Not only um, have we read much of the rest of that text, right? But we've even heard descriptions or paraphrases of this material that we're reading. But it is really nice to read it ourselves. And of course, many of you who have been working through the history of Middle-earth with me will know that I have oftentimes pined, right, to see the full text when Christopher just kind of says, so yes, uh, in the rest of this text, he talks about this and whatever. And I'm like, no, God, give it to us. You know, it's okay. Make the book three times as long. We don't mind. Um, but um, anyway, so it is It is really nice to see them. So most of these, uh, most of these texts that we're going to be looking at tonight are of this are of this kind. Um, things that were kind of left on Christopher Tolkien's cutting room floor, um, and things which uh, sort of supplement um, uh, some of the understandings that we already have. So um, I'm not going to do, again, like to, to approach this really rigorously, what we would do is we'd go back and we'd look at, like, uh, you know, we'd go back through the Unfinished Tales chapter and we'd kind of see exactly where these things fit in Right. Um, and I, I'm not going to be able to have time to do that for sure. Um, so I but I commend that to you. I think it would be really nice uh, to we still really don't have enough to kind of put together a, like complete text. Right. Of, of that stuff. But um, uh, it would be good to kind of look at it in that context a little bit. But we'll um, we'll do the best we can. Um yeah. Okay. But let's uh let's move forward. So this is the very end of the Numenor chapters. This is uh, I think this is the Dancing Bears chapter. Um and I I loved this passage and this is one of the things like when I was reading this was the first time that I realized exactly how much you know looking at all the mathematical tables in the front of this book, right, in, in part one, um, have informed me, right? I Can't you see it, like, behind all this? So, let's just read. The legends of the foundation of Numenor often speak as if all the Adain that accepted the gift set sail at one time and in one fleet. Well, yeah, they sound exactly like that, right? I mean, you read the beginning of the Akalabaeth, and what do you see, right? Then the Numenorians set off, and, like, they were ferried over to... I mean, it, it absolutely speaks that way. So, what just happened here? Can you see what underlay this sentence, right? He, re- he goes back and he rereads what he wrote before, like the beginning of the Akalabaeth, which describes the Adain uh, getting shipped over to Numenor, and the star appearing. It's a very mythic scene, right? We set out in the, in, the, in, the, in the ships of the elves and we're following the star of Erendil, right? To the land of gift, to the land of the star. And there Numenor, you know, appears on the horizon and they're set off at Numenor and ta-da! Oh man, it's, they receive the gift of the Valar and this is awesome, right? That's totally the way the story went. Now we can tell what happened. We can see exactly what happened now, right? We now understand well enough, based on what we've read, Tolkien's mindset, Tolkien's frame of mind, 
as he's approaching this. So he goes back and he rereads the beginning of the Akalabeth, and what does he say? Oh, that will never do, right? That doesn't make any sense. How many Numenorians were there? Like, how many of the Adain went to Numenor in the first place? And how many ships were there? And how many of the Adain could get on each ship, right? And then, plus, man, they, they will have had to bring... They've imported animals, right? They're going to bring herd... They're going to bring their livestock. They're going to bring all, like their stuff, right? They're going to bring tools and, and equipment and all these things. Like, holy cow. Yeah, there's no way, right? They have to have made a whole bunch of trips, right? Um, the first time, he was writing merely a legend, to use his word here, right? Now he's thinking practically, so look how he goes on. But this is only due to the brevity of the narrative. In more detailed histories, it is related, as might be deduced from the events and the numbers concerned. See, that's exactly what he was doing, deducing from the events and the numbers concerned, that after the first expedition, led by Elros, many other ships, alone or in small fleets, came west bearing others of the Adain, either those who were at first reluctant to dare the great sea but could not endure to be parted from those who had gone, or some who were far scattered and could not be assembled to go with the first sailing. Since the boats that were used were of elvish model, fleet but small, and each steered and captained by one of the Eldar deputed by Círdan, it would have taken a great navy to transport all the people and goods that were eventually brought from Middle-earth to Numenor. The legends make no guess at the numbers, and the histories say little. The fleet of Elros is said to have contained many ships, according to some, according to some 150 vessels, to others two or three hundred, and to have brought thousands of the men, women, and children of the Adain, probably between 5,000 or at the most 10,000. But the whole process of migration appears in fact to have occupied at least 50 years, possibly longer, and finally ended only when Círdan, no doubt instructed by the Valar, would provide no more ships or guides. Now, I have to admit, I am almost sorry that we don't have here his notes on this process, because you know it existed, right? You know that there was math done in the background. Can't you, can't you picture it in your head after what we've read in part one? Can't you picture in your head the sheet of paper on which Tolkien was like, okay, how many of them were there? Okay, between five and 10,000. So, and then like, how many, um, how much stuff would they have had? Like, okay, so about, like, how many cows are we talking about here, right? And how many sheep and, okay, and probably some dogs and, okay, and, uh, and then how many of these would fit in each boat? And, okay, and if, so if there were this many boats and then, and how long would it take them for the round trip and how would this work and, and filling out the whole story behind all this, right? You can, I mean, you know it happened, right? It has to have happened. You can, you can feel it coming through these two paragraphs, right? That all of these things, that all these things happened, right? Um, uh, and and the, at the end, we see his final calculation appears, in fact, to have occupied at least 50 years, possibly longer, right? Um, remember, we spent a lot of time focusing on those mathematical tables, in part one. But you'll remember that when we saw drafts of, like, finished versions of the narrative, they tended to sound like this, right? Um, we would, we, you know, we've, he's shown his work, right? Or at least we've seen the work that he's done, right? But he had no intention of including the tables of figures um, 
in the actual text itself. The whole reason to calculate out all of those generations of elves and determine their aging patterns was so that he could toss off a few numbers in a paragraph like this. And you remember, we saw that, right? Just toss out the number of elves who were on the Great March, right? And just toss off how many years they were marching, right? Um, and then how many of them, you know, were left at this other point and whatever. I mean, like, he could he could just... He had those numbers at his fingertips now. He could, he could make what he calls, notice, uh, detailed history, right? And this, by the way, is what I would adopt. That seems to be his word here, right? Um, and that seems to me actually a perfectly good characterization of saying, what is the heart? What makes his... Um, what makes his new Silmarillion both different and difficult to finish, right? Um, it's, I'm not writing legends anymore. I'm writing detailed histories, right? That's now um, what he's going to write. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so here, as I say, we're just seeing... We're just seeing the finished product, right? That paragraph in which he can drop these numbers. 150 vessels, 5 to 10,000 people, 50 years, right? No, but, but, but we know enough now to be strongly suspicious that he is not guessing, that he's done the math, right, in order to figure all this out, to achieve that level of detail in the histories. Now, notice, notice the other thing that we can see here. Right? Notice the other effect of this. The legend of the migration to Numenor is beautiful, but short. Right? And then the Adine were conveyed across the sea, and the star of Eärendil went before them until they came upon, you know, Elena, Numenore. Let's give it all of its names, right? Andor. Um, anyway... That's how the legend goes, in the legendary version, right? Um, in more detailed histories, notice what happens in more detailed histories? Now, all of a sudden, having thought through these details, more, more stories emerge, right? Uh, for instance, um, where, where is it? Um, the expedition, the expedition, right? Um, where is it? Uh, oh yeah, there it is. First paragraph. Sorry. Um, after the first expedition, led by Elros. Okay, so there was an expedition led by Elros, right? So first came a voyage of discovery with an Elvish captain. That's interesting, right? <clears throat> so we have, so what do we have? We have a recapturing of that legendary moment, right? Now it's Elros and his like select team, his select expeditionary force, right, who goes across with him and finds Numenor for the first time and names it, right, and then returns back and says, "Ah, my people, right? We have discovered Endor, Elena, the land of gift, the land of the star, and." Uh, and we shall go, right? And then what happens? But not everyone wants to go, 
right? Some people are afraid and they don't go right away. And some of them are like, and they're bringing all this stuff and there's probably stories there too, right? So not only do we get more story, right? And more opportunity for like complex narrative development, but notice also that we have suddenly new parallels emerging, right? Exactly, Stephen. It sounds very similar to the migration of the elves, right? Now we've got, just like the elves on the shores of the sea and before, right? We've got some who don't want to go and are kind of staying, and some of them who are really eager to go, and, you know, some who go fast, and some of them get left behind, apparently, right? Because apparently, you know, Kyrdin cuts them off, right? Last call for Numenor, um, and presumably some of them don't go. Some of them don't make it, right? Um, so, um, anyway, I, that's, um, uh, it is really interesting to see how these parallels with the Elvish migration, um, begin to well up right away, right? And these connections, which can be drawn into the full kind of story parallels that we see so many times in Tolkien, right? You can see him beginning to think along in those directions, um, inspired, essentially, only by the details of the detailed history, right? And I think that's uh, it's pretty interesting to see. Okay. Um, I loved this chapter on mushrooms. Um, here's one bit of it. The Druidine, so this is about the Druidine, this is from this is an exem, an excerpted bit, right? Or not an excerpted bit. This is an expurgated bit, right? A part that he cut from the essay on the Druidine, on the on the Wozes, right? From Unfinished Tales, or that was published in Unfinished Tales. The Druidine's knowledge of all growing things was almost equal to that of the elves, although untaught by them, discerning those that were poisonous or useful as medicaments or good as food. To the astonishment of elves and other men, they ate funguses with pleasure, many of which looked to others, men and hobbits, dangerous. Some kinds which they specially liked, they caused to grow near their dwellings. The Eldar did not eat these things. The folk of Haleth, taught by the Druidine, made some use of them at need, and if they were guests, they ate what was provided in courtesy and without fear. The other Atani eschewed them save in great hunger when astray in the wild, for few among them had the knowledge to distinguish the wholesome from the bad, and the less wise called them orc plants, and supposed them to have been cursed and blighted by Morgoth. And then there's a rough pencil note in the margin which reads, Delete all this about funguses, too like hobbits. Now, I assume he doesn't mean that the funguses themselves are too like hobbits, uh, that would be well, I was going to say it would be cruel to the hobbits, but probably neither the hobbits nor the funguses would really appreciate the comparison. Um, Okay. But I love almost everything about this. This is, I, I think, my favorite slide of the entire day, actually. Okay. What do we see happening here? So what do we learn from this passage on mushrooms? Well, um, the Eldar don't eat mushrooms. That's one thing that we learn. Why not? Why don't the Eldar eat funguses, do you think? See, notice that 
we're told why the other humans don't eat mushrooms because they can't tell the difference between wholesome mushrooms and poisonous mushrooms. So they issue them, save in great hunger, right? Because um, they, they, can't, they can't tell. So that makes sense. But that's not true of the elves, surely. Surely the elves can tell the difference. After all, the Druidine, who know them very well, right? We're told in that opening sentence, their knowledge, the Druidine's knowledge of all growing things, was almost equal to that of the elves. Discerning those that were poisonous, useful as medicaments, or good as food. So in the discerning of which growing things are poisonous and which ones are edible, the Druidine's knowledge is almost as great as that of the elves. So the elves have at least as good a knowledge of this kind of thing as the Druidine do. So why don't elves eat mushrooms? Why don't elves eat mushrooms? I can't think it's due to ignorance. Like the men, again, the Druidine's knowledge is... The elves' knowledge of growing things is used as the benchmark here by which the Druidine's knowledge is... to which the the Druidine's knowledge is being compared. Right? So... It can't be out of ignorance or fear, right? Fear based on ignorance, right? Since I don't know if it's going to kill me or not, I'm going to not. That makes all kinds of sense, right? But not for elves. Not for elves. Why don't they eat them? Well, the only thing that we're... The other thing that we're told... um, The other thing that we're told is that last bit, right? Um... The less wise, that is, the less wise among the Atani, among, you know, less wise human cultures, called them orc plants and supposed them to have been cursed and blighted by Morgoth. Orc plants. It's not that I can't see where they're coming from there. I personally love mushrooms myself. Um, But uh, it's not that I can't see where they're coming from. You could easily see how they might look like some sick, cursed, twisted mockery of plants, right? Because they're not plants. They grow like plants. They look a little bit like plants. Uh, But, I mean, orc plants, that kind of works as a metaphor, doesn't it? You know, like orcs are to elves and humans as fungus are to plants, right? That, from the outside, that seems to kind of track, right? Um and especially then when you, you know, like they grow on dead and dying things and in poop and stuff like that, right? I mean, it's, um, so again, that would seem to be, you know, like to be this like warped and twisted, blighted, um, anti, evil anti-plant, right? Again, that, that it kind of works as a metaphor. Um, but... But, um, surely that's not the elves again, right? We're told that it's only the less wise among the Atani who have that belief. So that's a sort of a quasi-superstitious belief. It's plausible, and it's a plausible belief. I could totally see how that belief arises. Um, but, uh... Yeah, I um 
I don't. Um, I can't see the elves. So why? Why don't elves eat fungus? Why won't they eat mushrooms? I don't know. I still don't understand. It would sound like I'm joking to call this the biggest enduring question that I am leaving this book with. But it's, you know, kind of up there, actually. I find this quite mysterious. At least with some of the other things that we have been told, even if they weren't explained, I felt like I was equipped to make a guess, right? Or, you know, to, I, could, uh, I, could, I, could, I could give some reasonably sound justification, right? Um, <clears throat> but um, but I, I, don't, I don't see it. I really don't. Um, could it be connected? Um, um, could it be connected to their reaction to um, I'm thinking of the um, what we've been reading recently in the last few weeks about decay, right, about decomposition and artemard um, how clearly, you know, putrescence, putrescence and the decay of dead bodies surely wasn't part of Arda Unmarred. And so that, therefore, the kind of stuff that fungus often grows on is itself... So is it, like, through association with Artemard in some way? I don't know. I'm totally grasping. No clue. Um, no clue. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, uh, I wish I did know. But let's come to Tolkien's crossing this out and his explanation for why... Yeah, Arthur, thank you for bringing that up. Why does Tolkien use the plural funguses? I don't know. Is this one of those things where people use... I, I feel like there almost has to be an etymological reason for this, right? Um, right, like, because the I plural is the, you know, is the Latin second declension plural, um, nominative plural, with the U.S. is the singular and I is the plural. And uh, I don't know the etymology. Can somebody tell me, the, somebody look up, what language does the word fungus come from? I bet we could probably solve this problem. But yeah, Arthur, like, this sounds to me like a... Um, I'm going to deviate from common usage to make a philological point. It, it, it smells like that. Um, it's... Okay, from Latin, perhaps related to Greek? Yeah, yeah, I wonder. I wonder. You know, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Okay, so both of you are quoting, I think, Alyssa, is that from the OED? Perhaps related to Greek, spongos, spongos. Um, 
if the etymology is from the Oxford American, Alyssa, thanks. If the etymology, if the common etymology of this includes the word perhaps, well, that's Tolkien's playground right there. Right. Um, so I bet you, I bet you that Tolkien had a theory about where the word fungus came from and that his theory led him to decide that using the Latin plural fungi was probably not uh, appropriate, right? And so it should just be pluralized funguses. That would be my theory. That'd be my theory. Again, it's, I don't know, and I have no idea what he might have been uh, thinking. I, uh, I mean, like, what his theory might have been. Um, but... Um, but that's what doesn't this feel like this like like the like the like the dwarves thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, yep. Um, yeah, Latin through Greek. Okay, probably a loan word from a non-Indo-European language. Oh, really? Does the OED say that, David Michael Roberts? Probably a loan word from a non-Indo-European language? Ah. Okay. Okay. Um, again. <laughs> like, if that's not, uh, if that's not an invitation uh, to a philologist, I don't know what is, right? Um, but, um, anyway. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know, but that would be my guess. My guess is that Tolkien is uh, playing with philology here. Um, and that's why he is choosing the plural funguses instead of fungi. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, now, delete all this about funguses. Two like hobbits. This is really cool. I think this is really cool. On the one hand, in my mind, the Druidine and Hobbits are always connected. Always connected. In my mind, again, I say this. And the reason I say this is that the Druidine and the Hobbits are the two examples that we have of... The two examples that we have of human subspecies, essentially. Right? Both of them clearly mortal, right? Operating under... I mean, this is... has got to be the question, right? If you're trying to determine what race somebody is, right? Elf, human, dwarf. Your answer needs to be, well, what happens to them after they die? (laughs) Right? Then you'll know. I'm not saying kill them and see what happens. I'm not uh, suggesting that as a as an experiential test. I'm just saying that their fates are, and it's very clear that hobbits share the fate of humans. That they have the same, they're in the same ballpark as human there, humans there. Um, so, I. Uh, the druidine emerge later. The Druidines seem pretty clearly to be yet another example, like 
uh, Galadriel herself, right? Of and Treebeard, the Ents as well. Um, characters that characters or peoples that Tolkien discovered on the journey, right? Um, he did not know that Galadriel existed until he got to Lorien. Um, he didn't know what Treebeard was. He thought Treebeard was just a giant, like Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, uh, very, very tall, human-ish person, right? Um, like, uh, like Narnia giants, right? That's what he thought Treebeard was until he got there. And then all of a sudden he discovered what and who Treebeard really was, right? Um, the Druidine seem clearly to be in the same category, right? Um, when uh, Mary overhears the conversation between Theoden and Khan Borechan, uh, he, um, he, like, the, the woeses are born. And he clearly was fascinated by the idea of the woeses, right? Um, he loved this whole concept. And so you see all this stuff that he wrote, not only doing some more kind of like development and world building to talk about what these people were like and what made them different from the other humans around them, but then also writing backwards a history for them, connecting them to the first and second ages, right? Thinking about um, uh, their relationship with the people of Haleth and even their presence in Numenor, right? Um, yeah. I'm really hoping for at least a, like, cameo woes in Numenor, uh, in, uh, uh, or at least an ex-Numenorian woes. It'd be okay if they're already back in Middle-earth. But anyway, um, in Numenor, in the Rings of Power series, totally want a, a druid dime. I don't think they're going to go there. Um, but it would be fun. Anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> maybe they're the people with the antlers. Maybe they are, Alyssa. Maybe they are. Um... Uh, yeah, no, as far as I know, Stephen, there never was a War of the Woeses, um, but there, you, you almost think there should have been, don't you? Um, but, um, and can I just say as well, uh, that for whatever reason, the word Woeses lends itself to just some of the most magnificent puns, right? Um, I still think that my favorite, um, Lord of the Rings online quest ever, title ever, uh, is the Woses Are Wed, uh, one about the wedding <laughs> among the Druidine. Oh, man. Like, it's uh, it's just, it never gets old. But anyway, okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> so, anyhow, um, I, it's just brilliant. Tolkien cut this stuff about mushrooms because he said it was too like hobbits. So he seems to have been sensitive to the fact, like, he himself also was aware of this, like, implicit connection between hobbits and Druidine. And he he cut out the bit about Druidines loving mushrooms because hobbits also love mushrooms, right? And, um, and so that might be, it might invite people to connect the two of them, and I don't, he seems not to have wanted that. Like, he didn't want to confuse to confuse people into thinking like, oh, well, maybe they're distant relatives or something like that, right? Um, so he seems to have, um, um, uh, he seems to have wanted to make sure to distance the two of them. But the fact that he has to go out of his way to do that does, in my mind, show that there is 
a real kind of connection. Again, not a causal connection. Again, I'm not saying they're identified or anything like that. Um, but here in both, these are the two cases in which he is developing within his world building this concept of a human sub race, subspecies, essentially. Different from the rest of the humans around them in ways that are unlike. I mean, the Woeses are more unlike the rest of the Adain than any of the Adain are from each other, right? Um, I mean, there's no, like, the difference between, like, a Brelander and uh, a person from Dal Amroth and a Numenorian, right? Um, they're all of them much more similar to each other than any of them are like one of the Druidine or like a hobbit, presumably. Right? Um, now, he doesn't... Um, he doesn't really um, get into how, in either case, he doesn't tell any stories about how they came to be. Right? How did these subspecies of humans emerge originally? Right? The very fact that he pushes the Woeses, the Druidine, all the way back to the First Age, not too long after humans first awoke, shows that he must be imagining the origins of these sub-races, the Druidine, and therefore presumably hobbits, like maybe there could have been hobbits in the Second Age or the First Age. There were Druidine. Why not hobbits? Um, we don't know. He does not seem to leave enough time for any kind of uh, sort of quasi-Darwinistic explanation for how the Druidine could have come to be. Like, there, there must have been some kind of intervention to make the Druidine. On Elugatar's part, on one of the Valar part, we don't really know, right? Um, uh, but there must have been some intervention because it doesn't seem possible that they could have, in the small amount of time that they had, become this different already. And we know, we get stories, right? We get stories of the, what is it, the Faithful Stone? Um, I'm forgetting if that's, I think that's the title of the, uh, unless I'm misremembering, um, of uh, the Drug, right? Um, uh, back with the people of Hawath. Uh, so they're already as different. They're already doing the Pukulman thing, right? Um, by the time they're with the people of Haleth, uh there in the first stage. So, um, they're already, they have different powers that other mortals don't have, right? We know that already. Um, and um, then we have hobbits, and we don't know when exactly they happened or how exactly they came to be so different either. But anyway, it's, um, it's very interesting, right? It's very interesting. Okay, um... Yeah, and I wonder the similarity. John is suggesting here, um, is it just that they love mushrooms that connects them to hobbits, or is it too similar to, say, hobbits and tobacco uh, with the, uh, what with the specialized herb lore and all? Yeah, so, so uh, um, each of them, like, each of these two human sub-races has their own, like, idiosyncratic, you know, 
agricultural speciality, right? The mushrooms for the druidine and pipeweed for the hobbits, maybe something like that. Um, but, uh, but anyway, there was something about it that that tied them too closely, and he didn't want them tied that closely. But again, I think in some ways that kind of gives away um, gives away the game or something like that. Okay. Um, how did you like this? Right? Talk about your shocking sentences. It was less shocking than some, actually, but... Is Amon removed or destroyed at the catastrophe? So here we see Tolkien wrestling with something that we've kind of seen coming for a while. If you're going to ditch the flat earth, what happens to the straight road? Right? Um, what happens to Amon? How can Amon be removed and taken away and remain? It's tough, right? Um, is Amon removed or destroyed at the catastrophe? So this is the drowning of Numenor, right? Again, another way of... Um, another way of paraphrasing that question would be what did happen? If the Earth was already round, right? Apart from the fact that Numenor sank into the ocean, did it do anything else? Did it mean anything else? Right? If you take away the making round of the world, um, I mean, it's hard to underestimate how enormous that was, right? The intervention that Iluvatar does into Arda at that point, to say, I'm going to fundamentally change, I'm going to change how the world is and how the world works. I mean, it's a, it's a, 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 an indescribably large and significant change that's made in the world, right? Um, at the end of the Second Age there, in the old version. But now, round Earth from day one, so... Can we retain that idea of the significance of the catastrophe, of the drowning of Numenor? Does the drowning of Numenor mean anything anymore? And if so, what and how? Okay, notice where he begins. It was physical. Okay, let's start with that. It was physical. Definitely a physical removal of Amon. No way. No, not a physical removal. There was a physical Raman, a physical Amon. It was it was a physical place. It was not just a spiritual realm. Like fairy, right? You cross a border and then boom, you're in fairy. And like, how are you going to get back home? Like, it's not just like this sort of spiritual dimension that it kind of overlaps with our world and has, where you know, maybe you can get there through a wardrobe or something. It's not like that, right? It was physical and physically in our world, Amon was. Therefore, it could not be removed without remaining visible as a part of Arda or as a new satellite. Oh, so we could have gone there, right? Hey, maybe that's what the moon is. No, the moon had to be exist earlier, too. So, yeah, we don't want that. We, you, you don't want to be... I mean, if there's a straight road and Arda is physically and has been physically removed, it's going to be in orbit, and he doesn't want to go there. It must either remain as a landmass bereft of its former inhabitants or be destroyed. Those are the only two choices. Remain as a landmass bereft of its former inhabitants 
or be destroyed. I think now that it is best that it should remain a physical landmass. America! What? (laughs) Okay. He thinks it best that it should turn out that America was once Valinor. Okay. There we go. So... It was delightful to discover that I'd been living in Valinor this whole time and not known it. Um, and um, <laughs> do you remember? There's a passage that anticipates this. Um, I should have quoted it. I didn't get a chance. Um, yes, Alyssa, the Brazil one. Uh, do you have that in an e-text that you could pop a... Did you copy and paste that? Or, um, uh, JJ, do you have, um, on fairy stories in a digital text? If you do, can you look up the word Brazil, uh, or Brazils, and, uh, give me the sentence that that word occurs in, uh, in on fairy stories? Um, that's, um... Yeah. Ellis, I knew you would be thinking of that same sentence, too. We can see this concept existing in Tolkien's mind, right? And it's the idea of a wondrous... Th- in, the, in the context in which he's talking about this and on fairy stories, he's talking about a wondrous and unknown thing. Um, uh, a wondrous and unknown thing becoming ordinary when it's, when you find it, right? Um, yes, JJ, that's it. It seems to become fashionable soon after the great voyages had begun to make the world seem too narrow to hold both men and elves when the magic land of high Brazil in the west had become the mere Brazils, the land of red dye wood. That a mythic land across the sea in the west when you have the voyages of discovery and you discover America, that magical land just becomes Brazil, right? It just becomes the land of red dye wood. It becomes a, it becomes a, 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 just a country from which natural resources can be drawn, right? The mythic idea of it is gone. Now, again, he's not talking in that sentence about an actual transformation of the land, right? He's talking about, like, conceptually. The idea of the lands beyond the sea and what shall we find there, and it is the... Think of the voyage of St. Brendan, right? And and uh, and those kinds of things, like that you sail off into the west and you find wonders and visions and uh, and then... But then you go and you land there and you build a colony and it's just another continent. It becomes just like home, right? So he's referring in that sentence to a disenchantment, right? Um, And I think that um, C.S. Lewis spoke of a similar thing when he talked about how um, sort of the trend, Tolkien talks about this too, is is talking about this in um, in that paragraph there, where how the more the world becomes explored, like that human imagination needs 
a place where it can roam free, right? So, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, you just had to go into the woods, right? You just go into the into the deep forest, and there are, you know, elves and witches and all kinds of things there, right? Um, and then, eventually, it's like over the sea, right? You have to go to strange far lands, Um uh, in order to find, you know, uh, like Gulliver's Travels, right? Which is not a good exa- a great example. But, but again, the idea of, like, if you go sailing out, you find strange and wondrous things, right? Um, and then, of course, Lewis talks about how, like, obviously the next thing, once the world is explored and mapped, uh, then the next thing is space, right? And so you have space as the place where you can imagine new things. Um, and that's um, uh, And that's what... And that's what was going on, right? That's that's what we, um, uh, where the imagination began to kind of live and develop. And and you know, Lewis was talking about in the context of doing that, right, in his space trilogy work. Um, but um, so we have a parallel to this idea in that, right? This idea of disenchantment. But here we have that idea projected out quite differently, right? Um, where the land itself, this idea, it's almost like the literalization of that process of disenchantment, right? Where it's not just our own imaginations which become disenchanted by going to the distant wood and finding it to be quite like the woods that we've always seen nearby us, right? Um, it's not just that phenomenon. But here he's imagining, what if the land itself is actually disenchanted, right? So it used to be Valinor, but now it's not Valinor anymore. Now the landmass, which used to be Valinor, still remains, but now it's, it's just America, right? A place which is much like Europe, after all, right? Same basic kind of dirt and plants and, you know, all kinds of things. Um, the land itself has been disenchanted. The Valar have kind of moved out, right? Um, let's look at his... see if he can sell us on this idea. But as Manway had already said to the Numenorians, it is not the land that is hallowed and free of death, but it is hallowed by the dwellers there, the Valar. So you see how he's taking that principle, right, that lesson to the Numenorians, don't think that you'll become undying by moving to the undying lands. It's not the land that makes them undying. It's just called that because undying folks live there, right? He's taking that, and notice how he's giving it this wholly new application, right? Or rather, he's sort of extending it. It is hallowed by the dwellers there. Oh, and the corollary to that should they cease to dwell there, it would cease to be hallowed, and it would just be another land, right? Now, I can accept that as a theoretical premise, right? I agree. Amon is only hallowed by the dwellers there, which means if they didn't dwell there, it wouldn't be hallowed. And so, therefore, if they left, it would become just a normal continent. Okay? I can hear what he's saying. Not sure I'm yet convinced that I like it at all. Um, okay, it would just become an ordinary land, an addition to Middle-earth, 
the European-African-Asiatic contiguous landmass. The flora and fauna, even if different in some items from those of Middle-earth, would become ordinary beasts and plants with usual conditions of mortality. So again, once the Valar leave, the land becomes... Hmm, I almost said unhallowed, but that's just not right. Um, uh, boy, there isn't really a word for that, is there? Um, to be dehallowed. Yeah, David, let's go with that. Dehallowed. Unhallowed makes it sound like it's like, you know, some blasphemous ritual has been performed. Like it, um, To call uh, America the unhallowed land makes it sound like we're reading Lovecraft all of a sudden, right? And that's not what I mean. Um, dehallowed. Yeah, I like that. Dehallowed. Deconsecrated, right? Um, the hallowing, the consecration has been removed. And as a result, the creatures all go back to normal, right? We, remember, he's talked about. Remember the stuff about the life cycles of like plants and animals in Valinor and how they don't age at the normal rate and, and things are, time moves differently. Uh, you know, all of those all of those kinds of things. Um, well, that would stop happening. Right? That would stop happening. Everything would be back to normal and the flora and fauna might be different. Right? You know, like we have moose over here and, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, some other, some other different kind of fauna that they don't have over there. Um, but, um, but they'd just be ordinary beasts and plants with usual conditions of mortality. Cause remember that's like Shadowfax is one of the Mayaris who are descended from horses that were brought over from Valinor, right? Who on the hound was a hound brought over from Valinor, right? Um, so yeah. Um, nice horses over here, but um, but they're they're not the Mayaris, right? Or the ancestors of the Mayaris, even. Um, okay, okay. Um, Amon and Erisea would be the memory of the Valar and Elds of the former land. Did you get that? I'll read that again. I think the first time I read this, I had to read this sentence like five times before I got it. Amon and Erisea would be the memory of the Valar and elves of the former land. Okay, so when the catastrophe happens and Numenor falls, what are the consequences? How is the world changed? We still want the world to be changed. This has to be a catastrophe with a capital C, not just the drowning of Numenor. This is not just, and now the Numenorians get their comeuppance. He still wants to retain, within his pre-rounded world, he wants to retain the idea that everything changes at the drowning of Numenor. So, how does he accomplish that? Okay, so the key element. So, you've got catastrophe element number one. Amon is now de-hallowed, deconsecrated. Right? It becomes a normal land now. And second, but what happens to Amon? Right? Similarly, especially in those early versions of the story of the downfall of Numenor, the most, what seems to me the most essential element 
of that whole story is the idea of the straight road. The lost road. That there remains a chance that you could still get there. In fact, that was the premise of his whole legendarium, right? The human sailor who finds his way on the straight road and ends up at Arisea, right? And hears all the stories and then makes it back, right? Um, that's a crucial idea, right? A foundational idea of Tolkien's legendarium. Surely the idea... So he's not just going to be like... He's just going to nuke them, right? Amon and Arisea. And now they are rendered normal and they're, it's over. They're done. No such thing anymore. So what? Like, Galadriel's deceiving herself? Where does the last ship sail off to at the end of The Lord of the Rings after all, right? They go in nowhere? Um, yeah. So what's the answer? Amon and Arisea would be the memory of the Valar and Elves of the former land. Amon and Arisea are taken away but they're taken away in purely spiritual form. They're not taken away physically. There is no more physical landmass that is Valinor. That's still there. I'm living on it currently, apparently. Right? Um, but the idea of Amon, right? The spiritual reality. What is Amon? What makes it hallowed? The dwellers there, right? Where did the Valar go? And the elves who were there, right? I don't know, but somewhere to the memory. So the Valar and the elves of Amon and Toarasea, their memories live on, and their memories are Amon and Arasea. Yeah, Edith, that's exactly my problem, too. So where did Frodo end up? No clue. No clue. Um, This does not seem to me to work at all in that way, right? I mean, too much... That idea that a physical human or elf in a physical ship could, on purpose, in the case of Cured in the Shipwright, or by accident, in the case of... um, you know, Alfwina, uh, could end up in Tolerasea, uh, uh, right? Could make it physically to the physical Valinor. Um, that, that seems... That, that was, for so long, so essential, so central to the entire legendarium that I don't think he can take that out. I don't think the patient will survive if he tries to take that out. And exactly what you guys are pointing at is exactly the thing that I was saying as well, right? That, like, okay, even if you say elves, when they go to Valinor, are leaving their Hroar behind, right? You know, like their Fear are consuming their Hroar, as we've heard several times, and so they become invisible and stuff. Well, so an invisible elf with a Hroar consumed by, you know, her Fea 
could presumably live in spiritual Amman or spiritual Arisea, right? Uh, I could live with that, right? I could, um, I could, I could go there. I think. No, I can't go there. That's the problem. Imaginatively, I can go there, but physically, I can't. So, what happens to Bilbo and Frodo? How can that be made to fit with what, with this idea? Um, that they too are like translated in some way? Do we have like a, is this like an Enoch situation now? Enoch from the Old Testament, he's in like three verses, but he's pretty cool. Um, uh, just translated, taken up to be with God. Is that what's happening here, right? Um, translation uh, directly from physical to spiritual being. I mean, um, I having a hard time with that, right? It does not seem, and it certainly would be a direct contradiction of what he's said elsewhere in trying to explain Bilbo and Frodo, right? Remember, we just got one earlier on in this book about what would happen to Frodo, right? Like, you know, how he would die and what would happen to him and everything like that. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, I can see what he's trying to do, but... Um, not um not loving that <laughs> not loving that at all um yeah yeah so um anyway there we are it does make me want to look for valinorian ruins a little bit harder though um you know over here in america um so scott you think that the uh, the appalachians are the pelori like really worn down over time yeah maybe so very, very old mountain range, right? Could be. Could be. Um, could be. Okay. Um, a little more on the catastrophe. The catastrophe represents a definite intervention of Eru, and therefore, in a sense, a change of the primal plan. Right, exactly. It is a foretaste of the end of Arda. Now, that's an angle on the downfall of Numenor I don't remember seeing anywhere before. The situation is much later than conversation of Finrod and Andreth, the Athrobeth, and could not then be foreseen by anyone, not even Manwe. So notice one of the things that he's doing is he's trying to reconcile the Athrobeth and what Finrod is speculating about and everything with this new idea of the catastrophe. Answer, if there are any contradictions... It's just because Finrod had no idea. Right. In a sense, Eru moved forward the end of Arda as far as it concerned the elves. Moved forward the end of Arda as far as it concerned the elves. So at the end of the Second Age, with the catastrophe of Numenor, he's like, okay, Arda's done with, right? It might not be Finished, but it's finished with as far as the Eldar are concerned, I guess. That's what I'm taking from that, right? Um, sorry, uh, leaf by niggle joke. Okay, uh, all right. They had fulfilled their function, and we approached the dominion of men. Hence the vast importance of the marriages of Baron and Tuor, not to each other, providing continuity of the elvish element. The tales of the Silmarillion, and especially of Numenor and the Rings, are in a twilight 
we do not see, as it were, a catastrophic end. But viewed against the enormous stretch of ages, the twilight period of the second to third ages is surely quite short and abrupt. So, right, if you're asking, well, hang on a second, if if Arda is done with as far as uh, as far as the Eldar are concerned by the end of the second age, what's what? What are Elrond, Galadriel, Círdan, Legolas like still doing around, right? Um, uh, and the answer is, <laughs> well, it doesn't end like super abruptly, right? You know, when you look at it from the big picture, the Third Age is kind of over in a heartbeat, right? Those three thousand years go by like. Nothing, right? So really, it's it's uh, it's winding up. It's winding up. Uh, the twilight has begun. Full darkness is not yet falling. But you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's getting there. It's getting there. The elves are dying. They, whether in Amon or outside, will become Thayar, housed only in memory until the true end of Arda. They must await the issue of the war, and only then. And of their redemption foreglimpsed by Finrod, for their true returning, corporeal or an arrow's equivalent, in Arda Remade. The issue of the war of the ring, I think? Is that the war he's referring to? Hmm. I'm not sure I'm understanding that sentence. They must await the issue of the war. Only then, and of their redemption foreglimpsed... I'm not sure what happens only then. And of their redemption foreglimpsed by Finrod. For their true returning... Now, the redemption, that's, again, of course, another Athrobeth reference. Finrod foreseeing the redemption of the elves, the instrumentality of humans in the redemption of the elves... Right, this beautiful, beautiful passage in the Athrobeth, when we get this glimpse of not only how death will truly be shown to have been a gift from Iluvatar, but it turns out to be a gift not only to the humans themselves, but to the Eldar as well, as the humans shall go before them and bring them into um, this, you know, into the, the new. Arda, right? Um, so that's the redemption for glimpsed by Finrod um, for their true returning in Arda Remade. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're waiting for that. The issue of the war. Maybe it's the final war against Morgoth, JJ? Maybe. I'm, I'm hesitant there. Here's why I'm hesitant about that. I'm hesitant about that because there's so little direct evidence of Tolkien still really thinking in those terms. But I suppose it makes sense that there would be some war at the end of the world, right? Even if he no longer has, you know, Turin coming back in person to stab Morgoth um, in the Dagor Dagoroth, Surely there will still be, presumably, a Dagor Dagoroth? Probably? I don't know. I don't know. Not really sure. 
Yeah. But this... Where Tolkien is being led by this reconsideration of the catastrophe, right? Given that the world is already round, what does the drowning of Numenor mean? What does it accomplish? What intervention is Eru doing on a a pre-rounded Earth when he drowns Numenor? And the answer that he's led to is rather grim, isn't it? The elves are dying. He is drawing the curtain down. Eru is drawing the curtain down on involvement in Arda by the elves. The story of the elves is done. Now, the curtain might take a little while to come down, a few thousand years, right? As it slowly drops. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I suppose the war is probably an end-time reference of some kind. Probably. I suppose. I'm not enormously convinced. But nothing else makes much sense either, so... I guess. But this is a remarkable shift. And think through the consequences of this. Think about those passages at the end of The Lord of the Rings. About Aragorn's talking about keeping alive the memory of the Elder Days. Right? Remembering, of course, Tolkien's comment about the marriage of Baron and Tuor here. Right? Um providing continuity of the elvish element. Think about Sam's role in retelling stories, right, and keeping the stories alive. It now has a totally different element to it, right? Um, It now becomes an appeal, essentially, to fulfill the role of humans in bringing about that redemption, foreglimpsed by Finrod, doesn't it? Begin to feel like that? Um, The need, not just for the sake of humanity, right, that humanity not forget the elves entirely, because should the elves ever be completely forgotten, it would be a duller world for all the rest of us, right? It's not just that. That sense has always been kind of there. At least I've always heard that, you know, at the end of, um, at the end of the Lord of the Rings. But it's not just that, is it? Right? It's a good deal more. Um, if the elves are dying, functionally dead, right? The redemption foreglimpsed by Finrod suggests that humans remembering them and in their way going before them to create the place uh, for them becomes now essentially the elves need them, right? Wow, I just realized this is starting to sound like if you believe in fairies, then clap your hands, right? Um, Tinkerbell needs your help, right, in order to survive. Yeah. 
I'm not sure that Tolkien would have been too proud to connect with that kind of thing, right? To sort of retroactively create a resonance for that, you know, that like in its silly, um, you know, modern way, right? Um, you know, the end of the Peter Pan play contains an echo, a memory, right? A shadow, dim shadow, perhaps, but still a shadow of this reality, right? Um, that's, I have never thought of that in my life. That's really interesting. Yeah. It just, but you see how, I'm, this is me trying to think through, like, what does this mean? <laughs> what does this mean? What is this world that he's creating? What are its implications and how does it, like, again, I'm going back to those passages in The Lord of the Rings because if he's going to change the whole world around it, The Lord of the Rings, right, keeping The Lord of the Rings as a received text, then um, uh, it, it changes things. It really does. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, oh, David, absolutely. The context of the Elder Days makes that thing wholly different in tone. Completely. I, I, I'm not... I'd, please understand, I'm not trying to sort of belittle what Tolkien is saying here about, um, you know, the redemption of the elves foreglimpsed by Finrod or something by comparing it to the end of the Peter Pan play. Um, but uh, but ra- rather the other way around, right? That I feel like he's sort of retroactively giving this like sort of unknowing, unsuspecting mythic resonance retroactively to the end of Peter Pan, right? That now you, you'll like never, if you, if, if you get your mind thinking in this way, you'll never, you'll never, uh, you'll never hear the end of Peter Pan the same again, right? Is the, is the kind of, um, uh, the, the way there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. All right. Let's get to, Galadriel and Celeborn here. Um, yeah, Cecilia, I, I, I'm st- okay, yeah, and, and thanks for the reminder. Uh, I'll end there with this, this section with that too. I, I, I too, am still having a lot of trouble with this. Um, I don't think it works very well. I still, I don't see how you can close off the lost road, the straight path, right? The, um, Ability for later post second age humans to physically access uh, Toleresia, whether whether it's Frodo doing it or Alfwina doing it, um, you know, it kind of still seems like it's sort of necessary, right? Um, and um, I, I don't see any good answer to that in any of those things, in any of those things that he's saying interesting to see this kind of brainstorming right and him thinking about things in these in these terms but um um but but yeah i agree that seems to me a huge problem and i cannot imagine um there's a bunch of things that we have seen tolkien to be willing to chuck out right um from his old mythology in the interest of the um detailed history that he's now writing right uh, that he's trying to make the silmarillion material into but I can't see him ditching the straight path. I, you know, the lost road. That's it. Um, it would um, would take a lot of believing. Would take a lot of believing. Um, um, 
Okay, Galadriel Caliborn. So, um, some uh, more <laughs> stuff about Galadriel and Caliborn. I'm going to see if I can go through these relatively quickly. Eventually, Galadriel and Caliborn, with a following mainly of Noldor, but of course also Sindar and perhaps some Noldor, some Nandor, established, Second Age 750, the realm of Eregion, west of the Misty Mountains, and maintained friendship with the dwarves of Moria. They had access to the great Nandorin realm on the other side of the mountains, where afterwards Lorien was, as a remnant of much greater woods joining up with Mirkwood on both sides of Anduin. This realm was then called Lorinand because of its golden trees, Golden Vale, Nandorin, uh, Nandorin Lori Gold equals Quenya Laure, and also Norlinden because its people called themselves Linde, Lindar, land of the land of the Lindar. The chief craftsman of Eregion was Celebrimbor. Galadriel and Celeborn are regarded as High Lord and Lady of all the Eldar of the West. Sauron visited the elves, but was rejected by Gilgalad in Second Age 1200. So now, looking back at our dates there, right, 750, so we're, what, 450 years after the establishment of Eregion by Galadriel and Celeborn. Um... Okay, he visits Eregion and is rejected by Galadriel and Celeborn. He sees that he has met his match, or at least a very serious adversary, in Galadriel. He dissembles his wrath and gets round Celebrimbor. The Noldoran smiths under Celebrimbor admit him and begin to learn from him. So, in a sense, the story of Feanor is repeated. Galadriel and Celeborn leave Eregion, Second Age 1300, and retreat through Moria to Lorinand, with many of their non-Noldoran following. They are well-received, and teach the Lindar many things, warning them especially against Sauron. Okay. Um, great. Okay, so um, yeah, um, Arthur was asking, did he discard Laura Lindorinen? Uh, no. Uh, remember, he talks about this at one point here, basically saying that Laura Lindorinen, uh, Laura Lindorinen is um, a kind of a tree-beardish construction. Um uh, you know, like a uh, like a conglomeration of things um, uh, is how he explained that at one point. JJ, yes, I like that. Shouldn't Kelly, shouldn't we have the high lady uh, and the high, the high, the high lord consort or something? Yes, something like that. Um, something like that. Okay, this is. Um, if I'm recalling correctly, I think, isn't this what I called Galadriel 3.0? I think I called this Galadriel 3.0. Um, this is Galadriel and Celeborn as really dominant in the affairs of the Second Age, right? Um, and again, you can see, we have to remember where Tolkien's coming from here, right? He starts... Galadriel emerges during the course of the Lord of the Rings. And by the end of the Lord of the Rings, she's a very important person, right? So we've got to project her back into the Second Age in a way that's going to make sense, right? Given who she is, as we see in the Third Age. Um, so, and it's hard because there were already a whole bunch of important Elvish characters, right? We already had... Gilgalad, right? He was there from from Last Alliance days, right? The Last Alliance is his his big deal, right? Gilgalad's, 
Um, we had Celebrimbor uh, forging the rings of power. So, um, having already established them, and we had Elrond uh, already kind of emerging through that story. But now, Galadriel and Celeborn. You, I mean, she's a huge deal. So, um, so what's um, what's going on with this? Galadriel and Celeborn were regarded as High Lord of all the Eldar of the West. Well, so Galadriel can't be High King or High Queen of the Noldor, because that title is already taken. We already have a High King of the Noldor, Gilgalad, right? And he's been High King of the Noldor for a long time. In Tolkien's chronology, I mean, right? Um, already for many years of Tolkien's creative life, Gilgalad has existed and been uh, the High King of the Noldor. And both of them are in the Lord of the Rings, so he can't combine them. He has to keep them separate. But how is Galadriel going to play second fiddle to, to Gilgalad, right? That's one serious creative problem here, right? His answer... She's not. She's separate and even above. Galadriel and Celeborn are regarded as High Lord and Lady of all the Eldar of the West. So that Gilgalad as High King of the Noldor is just like a vassal of hers. Sort of. That's not his words here. I don't want to I don't want to push a, an idea of uh, you know, a strict idea of like feudalism upon this or something. But you see what I mean? Like it may, he's he's created a new title for Galadriel and, by extension, Celeborn, who's along for the ride, um, uh, which is separate from Gilgalad and actually above him, right? She's the High Lady of all the elves left in the north, um, or in the west, anyway, um, and. Uh, and so Gilgalad has to be subsidiary, but we can't dethrone him. Can't unking Gilgalad, because that's an essential part of his story. So yeah, so there we go. High Lord and Lady of all the Eldar of the West. Founders of Eregion. Founders of Eregion. Celebrimbor was just the chief craftsman who happened to live there. Right? And who becomes <laughs> the sucker Right, uh, who works with Sauron and recapitulates the story of Fanor and Morgoth, right? Um, notice also how he is developing the history of Lothlorien here, right? On the other side of the mountains, during this time in the Second Age, on the other side of the mountains, there's one big realm called Lorinand. What is it? It's Lorien plus Mirkwood. Lorien plus Mirkwood, no gaps between them. There's the river. The river runs down the middle. But apart from the river running down the middle, there's no division. It's all one huge, great forest. And there's lots of elves all through it. Right? Lindar. That is to say... To Larry that didn't go over the sea, right? And it's called the land Norlinden, the land of the Lindar. And their rule extends over there on the other side of the mountains. Then when uh, the whole Sauron thing happens 
and they retire from Eregion and cross over the mountains. Notice what he insists on. They go over to Lornand, where they're very popular, right? Um, they go over to Lornand with many of their non-Noldoran following. So the fact that Galadriel seems to be one of the very few, we don't meet any others, but there were passages in this chapter which suggested that he, that there might have been other Noldor among the Galathrim. Um, but, um, but anyway, in any case, there are not very many, right? <clears throat> and, um, but this is not like a coincidence. This is them, this is like Galadriel and Celeborn washing their hands of the Noldor, right? The Noldor screw it up again. The Noldor and Smiths under Celebrimbor, right? And so, Galadriel and Celeborn leave them behind. Right? Um, so in a sense, the story of Feanor is repeated. But in a sense, it's almost reversed. Right? Instead of the Feanor figure, Celebrimbor in this case, leading a revolt against the powers ruling the land, the powers ruling the land leave him and abandon him. Right, and the rest of the Noldor, uh, who invited Sauron in and brought along all of this, uh, all of this trouble, right? That's really interesting. A really interesting piece of background to why there are no more Noldor over there in uh, in Lorien. Okay, let's keep going. But Sauron was more successful with the Noldor of Eregion, especially with Celebrimbor, secretly anxious to rival the skill and fame of Feanor. When Sauron visited Eregion, he sees quickly that he has met his match in Galadriel, or at least that in her he would have a chief obstacle. So he concentrated on Celebrimbor, and soon had all the smiths of Eregion under his influence. Eventually he gets, gets them to revolt against Celeborn and Galadriel, these pass through Moria and take refuge in Lorinan. So again, we have the revolt parallel to Feanor, but it doesn't work out exactly. They don't leave, right? The Feanor character doesn't leave. When Celebrimbor discovers the designs of Sauron and repents and hides the three rings, Sauron invades Eriador from the south and besieges Eregion. Celeborn and Amroth... So Amroth... I have a hard time tracking Amroth. In some places, Amroth is the son of Galadriel and Celeborn, and in some places, Amroth is the king, the Nandor king of Lorinand, who received them when they came over. I think in this version that we're talking about right here, he's the son. So I think this is like Celeborn and his boy, right? Celeborn and Amroth, with Nandor and dwarves, come through Moria to the west. Gilgoad sends help under Elrond from Linden, but he is not in time to assist much. Sauron breaks into Eregion and lays it waste. Celebrimbor is slain personally by Sauron, but Sauron does not get the three rings. His wrath now blazes. Elrond, with all the few refugees from Eregion he can gather, fight a vanguard action and draw away northwest. He founds a stronghold in Imladris. When Celeborn heard of onset of Sauron fearing to keep the Three Rings himself, 
he sent one to Galadriel in Lorinand by Emroth. Okay, I got real confused here again. How does Kelborn? So, first of all, can I just point out we have a moment when Kelborn is in possession of all three of the Elvish rings? Um, I'm not sure I'm following the timeline here. Help me understand this. Sauron invades Eriador from the south and besieges Eregion. Okay. Celeborn and Amroth come through Moria. Do they get to Eregion before Sauron gets there? Or do they come and attack the besiegers to try to lift the siege of Eregion? Because it sounded like Celeborn and Amroth with Nandoran dwarves come through to try to rescue Eregion, but they fail. Sauron breaks in and kills Celebrimbor first. That's how, at first I read that, but then, how does Celeborn get the rings? I'm not sure how Celeborn gets the rings. Celebrimbor is slain. Sauron doesn't get the three rings. Why? Because he already gave them to Celeborn? So Celeborn gets there first? In which case, what? He then leaves? I'm not, um... Yeah. Okay, right. In Unfinished Tales, Amroth and Durin come to the rescue after Celebrimbor is already dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Saving Elrond? Yeah. Celeborn makes a sortie and breaks out. So, Celeborn is besieged. Which makes it sound, Chad, like they got there first. And joins Elrond, but cannot get back. Back where? I'm so confused. Um, I'm so confused. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, see, Chad, again, I, I'd have to line it up to be really sure, because, again, there's so much, so many different versions of the story in Unfinished Tales, right? Um, I'm not sure exactly, like, where these paragraphs fit into, among the texts that we're, we get in Unfinished Tales. Um, yeah. Because this sounds different from that one which is similar to this, Chad, as you're saying. But this sounds different. Not quite the same. Um, Celeborn's role in particular seems different. So I don't know. Um, Alyssa, I wonder. That's interesting. Alyssa's saying maybe it's an error for Celebrimbor. That is, maybe he means... Um, when Celebrimbor heard of the onset of Sauron, fearing to keep the Three Rings himself, he sent one to Goadriel and Lorinand by Emroth. That would make sense. It would make more sense than this. But then we still have Celeborn making a sortie and breaking out and joining Elrond, which Celebrimbor certainly did not do. Right? So they can't both be Celebrimbor. It's possible that the f- 
I mean, if we replace the word Celeborn with the word Celebrimborn, the first one, if we imagine that that might have been a mistake, it would make more sense of that first sentence, though the sequence still seems confusing, since Celebrimbor, Celebrimbor's death is referred to in the previous paragraph, right? Um, but, you know, maybe he's not being strictly sequential here, but, um, yeah, yeah, I don't, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to make sense of all of these things, especially how to reconcile them with the different versions of stuff that we get in Unfinished Tales. Um, the one thing, the one conclusion I think we can be quite firm about um, is that um, uh, Christopher Tolkien's words in Unfinished Tales about how incredibly tangled and complicated the story of Gal- the, all these notes on the story of Gladwell and Kelborn were are certainly justified, <laughs> right? And uh, getting to see more of the text does not make them easier to understand, for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, Chad, I agree. I, I would love to see them side by side like we did for the first and second editions of The Hobbit. Yeah, yeah, I would I would love to see that too, um, to kind of put together, even, you know, Chad, to whatever extent we could, to kind of put these together in a in a, like, Children of Hurin-esque sort of way, right? You know, uh, replacing the bits where Christopher says, Christopher summarizes with some of these original texts and things. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, not sure what is being envisioned there exactly. Okay. Galadriel is made sister of Finrod. In youth she was fond of wandering afar, she often visited the Teleri of Alqualande. Her mother was sister of Olway and Elway. There she was often a companion of Teleporno, Silvertal. Celeborn's relationship, kinship, from a younger brother of Olway and Elway, Nelway. Teleporno is, of course, Celeborn's Quenya name. Um, Celeborn's unquestionably unfortunate Quenya name. Um... Uh, yeah, I know it's Telep or no. I know. It's just hard. It's just hard. I, I, um, I really think this is one of those moments where I would have wanted to just kind of throw the flag for Tolkien and be like, I, I know, I know you're doing your linguistic thing. And I know that this makes really good sense to you. And this sounds really good from the perspective of your elvish phonetics. But, like, can we have... I'm sorry. Stop. <laughs> Don't. Not, um... Uh, not teleporno, please. Um, it's like Tyrion upon Tuna, right? I, 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 it's worse. Far worse than Tyrion upon Tuna. Um, but anyway. Okay. I just have to acknowledge it and move on. Account of Goadriel's quarrel with the sons of Feanor at Sack of Alquilande. How she fought with Celeborn. She nonetheless went into exile because though she did not love the sons of Feanor, she was personally proud and rebellious and wished for freedom. Okay. We have some familiar stuff. So this is him retconning her back into the first age, right? What role did Galadriel play in the first age? Sister of Finrod. Okay, we get there. Um, daughter of 
the sister of Olwe. Right. Okay. Fine. Um, not what we get in the published Silmarillion, but close. Not too far off. Right. Um, there she was often a companion of Teleporno. Okay, so Celeborn is from Valinor too. So he's not one of, um, I almost said Thranduil, one of Thingol's folks, right? He is a Teleri of Alqualande. Um, kinship from a younger brother. So he's the son of Nelwe. So we got Olwe and Elwe who have at least two siblings. Huh. So that makes Celeborn and Coadriel first cousins? That can't be. Kinship from a younger brother doesn't say he's his son. What is he, then? No idea. Um, no idea. Okay, it's a little vague. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say Galadriel and Celeborn, probably not first cousins. Um, account of Galadriel's quarrel with the sons of Feanor at Sack of Alqualande. So he's making a new story for Galadriel. She was there at the Kinslaying. But she fights on the side of the Teleri at the Kinslaying? But then we get how she fought with Celeborn. Is this how Galadriel and Celeborn met? I mean, talk about awkward first dates. The Kinslaying? Really? So, or, 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 or what? We had a, we had a, 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 you know, a Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen moment with Galadriel and Celeborn at the, at the Kinslaying, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um... Uh, that's not cute. That's not cute. I bet they don't talk about how we met very often, right? She nonetheless went into exile, so she... Oh, wait. She must have been fighting us alongside him, not against him, right? Yeah. <laughs> the couple that slays together stays together. Evil Dr. Ken. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Right, okay, no. So she fought alongside Celeborn. She's not fighting against him. Because she's fighting with him. So she goes to the kinslaying and fights... Okay, okay. All right, this is is much better. Still not a great first date, mind. Right? Uh, But a little bit better. Okay, so she's fighting alongside Celeborn. So being forced to choose between her own kinspeople, the Noldor... She sides with her other kinsman, the Teleri, and her boy toy Caliborn, right, who's there. So she and Caliborn team up, and they do a tag-team thing in the battle against the Feanorians. But she goes into exile voluntarily, not because she's doomed to do so, having been guilty of kinslaying, or was she guilty of kinslaying? Does it count? If you're killing Feanorians, if the kin that you're slaying are bad guys, if they're the aggressor, if the kin slaying is their fault, 
boy, this is getting murky. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, whew. Oh, uh, Everett, the other chat that I'm referring to, there's, I'm seeing a whole bunch of different chats, um, but the other chats that I'm referring to are often uh, people on Twitch. They're also people in Zoom. It's complicated. I've got like five things going on here. Um, okay. All right. Um, okay. So she goes into exile because though she did not love the son of sons of Feanor, no, she was fighting. She's quarreling with him. Does that mean she's fighting them? Did she participate in the kinslaying? Uh, I don't know. She's personally proud and rebellious and wished for freedom. Okay. So she goes into... So, so here's Galadriel. Minding her own business. A kinslaying breaks out. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe she's having tea with Celeborn, you know, and like her mother-in-law in a uh, you know, uh, a, a nice tea room in Alqualonde, you know, with nice lace and pastel colors, when all of a sudden a kinslaying breaks out, right? And so she goes out and she dresses down the sons of Feanor and is like, what do you think you're doing, young men? And they're like, hey, we're stealing the ships. And she's like, that's a bad idea. And Celeborn comes out and he's like, we should fight them because we don't want them to take the ships. And she's like, yeah, okay, but I don't... I, I. Anyway, so she's like, okay, so I am not into this Fanor thing. Like, this Fanor thing. But uh, while I have no truck with Fanor or his sons, this whole rebelling against the Valar thing, I'm all in, right? So I'm not going to slay any kin here today unless they're bad kin. But I'm... I still am very proud and rather rebellious, and I I do think we're getting the shaft here from the Valar, so I'm going to move out on my own. Whew. Yeah, James, I know there's that set of notes in Unfinished Tales where she's planning to leave Valinor anyway and just happened to leave Valinor at the same time as the Kinslaying. Um, I think that's probably this. I think this is what's behind that. Probably. This is probably when she and Celeborn sail independently on their own ship and arrive separately, right? Like, we're, we're going to go into exile too, but we're doing our own exile, thank you very much, right? We're not going to be associated with your ragtag, bloodthirsty rebellion, Thanor. We're rebelling on our own, um, on principle. Something like that. Um, okay. There's so much I don't understand. There's <laughs> so much I don't understand here. Um, uh, I have to admit, some of these um, some of these passages are kind of making me really glad that Christopher Tolkien summarized them. No, I still prefer to have it ourselves. It's more fun to puzzle it out ourselves. Um, let me say instead, I can certainly understand why he just summarized it, right? Okay, let me not talk about the Sylvan Elves and their language because we're out of time. So, for next time, this is what we're doing. We're going to start with the Sylvan Elves and their language chapter. 
And then we're going to go read all the way through, but not including the rivers and beacon hills of Gondor. Uh, so through chapter 21, several short chapters. Well, you know, if you want, you can just read the whole thing. Just finish the book. Might as well. Might as well just finish the book. We're not going to get through the rivers and beacon. My goal is in is next week to get all the way to that point so that in our last discussion we can just talk about the rivers and beacon hills of Gondor, which, believe it or not, is what I've been looking forward to most in this whole book. Um, so um, go ahead and read the rivers and beacon hills of Gondor just in case we can start it uh, for next time. And uh, it's a little ambitious. We'll see. And my plan will still be to finish our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth a fortnight from today on the third Wednesday of April. All right? Thanks, everybody, uh, for joining me this evening. Um, We are coming down the final stretch here in the nature of Middle-earth. Looking forward to that and looking forward to getting to our next book, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, which we'll talk about in May. Thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys soon. Good night now.